this morning. If you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, I invite you to turn me to the book of Colossians. And Justin was absolutely right. We will make fun of some of you if you improperly put an S on some books. But it is Colossians. It is the letter written to the church of Colossae, to a group of those in that church referred to as the Colossians, written by Paul, authored by God, the Holy Spirit. And so, as we will see this morning, uh, this morning we are finishing chapter 1, and then uh, Evan will be with us next week, be back, uh, as he will kick off chapter 2. And uh, this morning, as we continue in this kind of last section of chapter 1, James and I are kind of sharing a topic. James was uh, preaching last week and finish with this mystery of Christ, this mystery revealed. And so that's what we're going to pick up this morning. So uh, we're going to share that a little bit. Uh, but this is just such a beautiful passage of Scripture. I know. Hopefully you don't get tired of hearing me say that because we're ultimately going to say that every week. It's every passage of Scripture we come to. At least I've yet to find a passage of Scripture that's not beautiful and wonderful. And uh, if you can find one, then you're reading the wrong Bible. Uh, for all of Scripture is beautiful and wonderful and good for correcting, teaching, and rebuking. Uh, so Scripture says, and uh, so Colossians chapter 1, verses 27, 8, and 9 uh, are no different at all. Uh, but there are three major takeaways this morning. Uh, but before we get there, let us read Colossians 1. I'll tell you what, let's just back up and read this whole little uh, paragraph section here, starting in verse 24, where James uh, began last week. So Colossians 1, starting in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And starting in verse 27, to them... God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this text that you bring us to this morning. And I pray that you would help us to navigate this this morning through your Holy Spirit. And so would you help us to uh, see, Lord, and hear and take it to heart. Uh, Lord, would you um, help us to know um, how to even apply this to our lives by the power of your Spirit. Lord, this uh, lead us this morning to this text. Thank you for Christ, Him crucified and Him revealed. In His name we do pray. Amen. So we have this wonderful text that Paul continues as he's uh, finishing up chapter 1 here. And of course we know for Paul, he doesn't write in chapters, he doesn't write in verses. He's writing this letter to the Colossians. And as we've said uh, in the beginning of, uh, of our time in Colossians, Colossians is consumed with Christ. It is, we call a Christological letter. It is all about Christ. And we said that's one of the many reasons we love Colossians. It is consumed with Christ. You know, you go to some of Paul's letters, they have different 
different uh, purposes, different topics. You go to Galatians, and he is kind of beating up the church for going back to the law and uh, other purposes of different letters. But Colossians, he is lifting up Christ. He is speaking much of Christ, and this morning is no exception. So there are three major takeaways from this, uh, this section, verses 27, 28, and 29. Now, honestly, we could spend a lot of time in these just three simple verses. There is a lot of things going on. In these three verses, but we're going to try to do our best to make it through here. And I don't want to alarm you, so don't be alarmed. I have 10 points, okay? So there's only three major takeaways, but there's 10 points in these. Uh, but there's three major takeaways from these three verses, and the first of which is this. Christ, the revealed mystery. Christ, the revealed mystery. Now, James started last week, and we're going to continue because, because Paul started in verse 26, and he continues in verse 27. It says, to them, who's to them, the saints, to the saints God chose to make known how great among the Gentile are the riches of the glory of this mystery. So here's this mystery, and he tells us. We don't have to wonder anymore what this mystery is. What's this mystery? We don't get to argue about this mystery. We don't get to have debates about this mystery. Uh, now, some people can have debates, but they're wrong. Because Paul tells us right here in, his inspired, in God's inspired word what the mystery is, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Mystery solved. Right there, right? We could just say, period, go home, sermon's over, but it's not. But that's the first takeaway. Christ is the revealed mystery. Christ is the revealed mystery. Now, there are at least three aspects of this revealed mystery. You see where we're going. We've got three points. First one's got three points. Christ is the revealed mystery. As we think about Christ being the revealed mystery, He is the revealed identity. He is the revealed identity. Now, we know that the Messiah is nothing new. We see the Messiah being prophesied from the Old Testament, not just the end of the Old Testament or the middle of the Old Testament. We know the prophecy of of the Messiah goes all the way back to the very beginning. We we talk about this often, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. When sin first enters into the world, God says, I will send someone to destroy sin. I will send someone to destroy the enemy. And so Christ is the Messiah is prophesied, He is promised, He is predicted from the very beginning, from a long, long time ago. And so from the very beginning of Scripture, we see that the Messiah has been promised and prophesied and predicted. The Old Testament gives us so many signs, so many of these predictions, if you will, so many prophecies of who to look for. And just to name a few, the, the Old Testament tells us that the Messiah who is to come will be a Jew, He'll be of the Hebrew people. He'll be born in this little town called Bethlehem. And we celebrate that at Christmas, right? We sing songs about it. He says he'll be of the line of David. He says he'll be born of a virgin. So he'll be like Moses. He'll be kind of like Melchizedek. He'll be very familiar with suffering. And there's so many prophecies throughout the Old Testament, so many predictions that kind of give us who the Messiah will be, but it never says his name will be Jesus of Nazareth. So it doesn't put a name tag on him. So so many miss the identity of Jesus Christ. And so this mystery that is revealed, firstly, Christ is the revealed identity. It is he who is the Messiah. 
Because Jesus fulfills all of these and all of the predictions of the Old Testament. Every single prophecy that was ever uttered about the coming Messiah was completely fulfilled in Christ. John the Baptist recognized Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 29, John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. The disciples recognized Jesus as being the Son of God. And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, Son of the living God. Could you be a little more clear, Peter? Could you be just a little more clear of who Christ is? And then Jesus clearly identified Himself as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. John 14, 6. Jesus said to Him, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. And so, as we see this mystery that Christ is the revealed mystery and He is the revealed identity. He is the one. He is the Messiah. But secondly, for the second time, we're going to kind of keep moving here. Not only is Christ the revealed identity, the Gentiles are included in the revealed community. They are included. The Gentiles are included in the revealed community. So it's not just the identity of who the Messiah is. This mystery is not just who Christ is, but who did He come to save? He didn't just come to rescue the Jewish people, which was what they all, or what most of them suspected, what most of them thought was the case. But this was not it. It was known the Messiah was coming for a people. They were not expecting that He was coming for the Jews and the Gentiles. Jesus was coming for all who would repent of their sins and turn in faith and believe in Him. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 29, he says, Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Go with me just a couple books over to Ephesians. Let's read this little section. Ephesians chapter 3. Of this mystery. This mystery that is revealed. Paul talks about it in Colossians. He talks about it in Ephesians. I'll read this kind of quick, but in Ephesians uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and the prophet and prophets by the Spirit. So it says this wasn't known in prior days, but He has revealed it now. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. So this ministry, this mystery... As a Christ is the revealed identity. He is the revealed Messiah. It is Christ. It is no longer mysterious as who the Messiah is. It is no longer mysterious as who He came to save. He came to save everyone who would look to Him in faith and repentance. Go also with me to the Gospels. John chapter 10. Like always, we're going to be all through the Bible here, so just get used to that. John chapter 10. And I'm going to read fast this morning many of these longer passages. But I don't want to just to just to skip over these. Because who, who are the people of God? One flock, Jesus says. John chapter 10, starting in verse 7. Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me 
are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd. Who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And I must bring them in also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this, reason, for this reason, the Father loves me. Because I laid down my life and I make it and I take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This I charge. This charge I received from my Father. So we see this picture of the people of God. Not only is Christ the revealed Messiah, but He reveals His people. His people are all of those who would come to Him. His flock, His sheep are those who know His voice. And the greatest encouragement to me in all of Scripture is that Jesus says He will lose none. That He came to save those who are His. Christ is the revealed mystery. He is the revealed identity. The Gentiles are included in this revealed community. And then thirdly, Christ in us is the revealed activity. Christ in us is the revealed activity. This is what this mystery is all about. As it says here in Colossians, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory now paul talks often in his letters and we see often in scripture about us being in christ and us being a new creation in christ but here he reminds us and he points us to this mystery of the gospel is that part of this mystery is not just that christ has been revealed not just that the people of god have been revealed but this truth has been revealed that christ is in us he didn't just come to, 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 to save a people from this, this political war that the, Jews, that the Jews were expecting. He didn't just come just to save us from the, the penalty of sin, which He did. He didn't just come to save us eternally, which He did. But He came to dwell in us now. He came to dwell in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that is beautiful. That is majestic. And that is this mystery because they weren't looking for that. They weren't expecting that. The greatest aspect of the mystery revealed that Christ is in us. The hope of glory. Go with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, just a couple of verses, verse, uh, starting in verse 9. Paul says this to the church of Rome. It says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So this is essential for a believer, that, that Christ dwells in us. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you to give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Our life comes from Christ who dwells in us. And if we are saved, if we are believers, if we are converted, if we have truly looked to Jesus, then Christ dwells in us. Christ dwells inside of us. One last passage, Galatians. A couple of verses, a couple of books over. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Just one verse. Galatians 2.20. Paul says it so well as he always does. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So this mystery is that Christ has been revealed. He has been revealed to His people who He came to save. And not only did He save us, He dwells inside of us. This is the mystery that has been revealed in Christ. And we see this in Scripture and we get to understand this as we read through the Bible, as we read through God's Word. We understand who Christ is, who God's people are, and who we are in Christ. He is the revealed mystery. Who He is and who He came for and that He dwells within us. But not only is Christ the revealed mystery, but secondly, Christ is to be proclaimed. So Christ is the revealed mystery and Christ is to be proclaimed. Verse 28, Paul continues. So this revealed mystery, who is Christ, and all these wonderful things that have been revealed because of Christ, we are going to proclaim Him. We are going to shout about Him. We are going to shout about this to the world. Verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So again, Paul gives us some very clear direction here. He, he says Christ is to be proclaimed. But Paul proclaims with a purpose here. Paul proclaims with a purpose. Here you go. If you're taking notes, take this down. Paul's purpose in proclaiming Jesus is to present people perfect. You know how to throw one in there somewhere for you. There's your Christmas present. Paul's purpose in proclaiming Jesus is to present people perfect perfect he said well john people can't be perfect you're right so let's look at this word and let's look at what he's saying here it says him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone we're going to come to that in just a second but let's kind of start with the end with all wisdom that because here's the purpose so we're going to proclaim him but for this purpose that we may present everyone mature in christ now there is this word here uh teleos and it means two things, perfect or mature. And it's kind of a, a wide gap. Right? It's a wide gap. If you describe someone as perfect, if you describe someone as mature, it's a pretty big gap there, right? That person's perfect. Oh, he's mature. It means two vastly different things from our Western mindset. But this word is, is translated in both ways throughout Scripture. 
A definition is a complete and undivided way in which a person with all of one's positive and negative attributes is oriented towards God or towards Christ. Let me say that again. This idea of perfect or mature, teleos, a complete and undivided way in which a person is oriented towards God. Probably a little easier way to say that. If you go to Matthew chapter 5, just read a couple of verses here before you. you don't have to turn there. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says this, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You say, Whoa, well, I'm not perfect. Matthew 19, 21, someone came to Jesus. You remember the story of the rich young ruler? And he gave him this laundry list of all the things he had done. And Jesus says, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor that you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And if you remember the story, he turns away sad and he walks away because he can't do it. And we said the same thing, we can't be perfect. But go with me to Ephesians chapter 4, same word. Gives us a little different understanding. And in our Sunday morning Bible study this morning, we turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll start in verse 11. We're going to come to this verse and uh, this word in verse 13 Teleos, mature manhood or perfect manhood. But starting in verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And so, so God has given the church all of these things, all of these people, all of these resources for a purpose to build up the body until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to become perfect, to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind and doctrine, by human cunningness, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up or mature or to become perfect in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Paul gives it, he kind of fleshes this ideal out even more But what it means to mature in Christ, to become more perfect in Christ, to become more complete in Christ, to become more full in Christ. And this is what Paul is saying, the reason that we proclaim Jesus, the reason we proclaim this mystery of Christ, Him revealed, the purpose of that is that we might grow up in Christ. That we might mature in Christ. We might become more like Christ. And so how does Paul say that we'll be made more mature like Christ? How does he say we'll become more perfect like Christ? And he says practically we're going to do this in two ways. We're going to do this in two ways, he says. In him we proclaim Two ways, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So how do we proclaim Jesus? He says by warning everyone and teaching everyone. I want to read an excerpt from a, another teacher that I found very helpful in understanding the, how these two things work, warning and teaching, because they are very different yet very similar. They are complementary terms. The strategy for making disciples 
is to proclaim Him, declaring Jesus as the sole means of salvation by warning and teaching others. These two terms are complementary functions that extend beyond simply sharing the facts about the gospel. So it's not just as simple as just sharing facts. Warning includes cautioning and counseling others in light of the truth, while teaching involves informing and instructing them on how to live according to the gospel. So Paul says it's both of them. Paul says if we want to grow up in maturity, if we want to be made more perfect, if we want to proclaim Christ, if we want to further understand the mystery of the gospel and how it's revealed to us in Christ, if we want to understand how we are in Christ and He is in us, and if we want to grow and be more like Jesus, then we have to be warned and taught. So I don't have to be warned. I've been in church for 37 years. I've got this covered. I've been teaching Sunday school longer than you've been alive. Little preacher. But Paul says it's both. That we proclaim Christ by warning everyone, not just new converts, not just young people in the church, not just older people in the church, but everyone. And we know in context here, he's not really talking about every everyone. He's talking about all of those people that he's doing ministry with, all those that he is, that he is investing his life in that we'll get to in just a moment. All of these that God has placed him in ministry with to pour himself into, He's going to warn these people. He's speaking to the church to warn these in the church and to teach these in the church with all wisdom so that we may present these same everyone's mature in Christ. If those that he is going to present mature in Christ need to be warned and need to be taught. And Paul's letters, as well as the rest of the New Testament, are full of examples of warnings. Warnings about false teachers. Warnings about a false gospel. Warnings about besetting sins. Warnings about returning to the law. So many warnings given to us to point us back to Christ and the true gospel. To Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Because we need warnings, do we not? We tend to drift. And so Paul gives so many examples of giving warnings. And the purpose of these warnings is always to bring us back to Christ. And of course, we don't have to look very far to see the vast array of teachings in the New Testament. Especially in Paul's letters. Paul's letters are primarily consumed with three things. With warnings, teachings, and exhortations. I don't think he has anything else in there. And they're all done in about three sentences. He likes his run-on sentences. But Paul teaches the church about so many things, including the fruits of the Spirit, about God's sovereignty, about how to live as believers in a lost world, about how to honor Christ in work and marriage in our family, as husbands, as wives, as children, and so many other teachings about how the true gospel of Christ impacts every aspect of our life as believers. God gives us His Word and He teaches us. He doesn't just warn us, but He also teaches us positively about how to follow Christ. Together, these warnings and teachings move us, to, move us towards a Christ-centered completeness. It moves us towards maturity and perfection. 
But this is not just the call of Paul. It is the call of the believer to proclaim Christ through warning and teaching. Thought you were going to get off the hook, didn't you? It's not just Paul's job. It is all believers' job. Paul's going to come back to this in chapter 3, verse 16. We'll just read it, give you a little heads up. In Colossians 3, 16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing. You can use the word warning. Teaching and warning one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So it's all of our costs, not just the apostles' job. It's not just the elders' job. It's not just the missionaries' job. It's all of our jobs as believers to teach and to warn those in the church. But also in Romans chapter 15. I didn't write this down, so I guess we ought to turn there. Romans chapter 15, verse 14. 15 verse 14 says this, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. And so you can kind of go and read the rest of that section in Romans and you see that he has this, this good, healthy pride, his pride in the Lord, he, he goes on later to say, that these in Rome at this moment that he's talking about, they are teaching one another, they are instructing one another. So in Christ, he is proud of the work that's being done amongst the believers there. They're instructing one another. Now go with me to Matthew chapter 28. Passage that we go to often and is a very common passage. And many of you could probably quote this and it even has its own special name. We call it the Great Commission. But in Matthew chapter 28, let's see what Jesus said before he left before he returned to heaven to sit on the right hand of the Father. Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And this is his command. This is his great commission to all believers, not to elders, not to missionaries, not to the apostles, but to all believers. If, you have, if Christ dwells in you, this is your command. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so not only do we have this instruction from Paul, we have this instruction from Jesus himself, from God's word, that we as believers are called, we are commissioned to teach others we are commissioned to teach others we are commissioned to warn others he said oh hold up teaching i can i can handle teaching i can maybe sign up for a class or maybe i can do a little bible study in my house but i have to warn other people that kids i gotta start meddling i'm not supposed to judge anybody you ever heard that before I'm not called to judge well let's let's dispel that myth as believers we are called to warn one another. We are called to warn other believers. Go with me to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians, very end of it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 
Not only are believers called to teach one another, we are called to warn one another. Second Thessalonians 3, verse 13 says this, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. And we see this in other places in Paul's writings. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And we can unpack that, and there's a lot to unpack. And we can go to Matthew chapter 18, as we often do, as we talk about church discipline, which is uh, something that, that healthy churches uh, practice and, um, and, and implement. And if you're, if you're new with us, I don't want you to check out and say, hey, this is a weird church. But the purpose of warning brothers, the purpose of Matthew chapter 18, of church discipline that we talk about often, the healthy churches uh, look to, is one purpose and one purpose only, and that is restoration. That is that we may look more like Christ. That is that we may become more mature in the faith. That is that we may become more more perfected like Christ. The purpose of having these difficult conversations with brothers and sisters in Christ regarding sin is for the purpose of restoration, maturity, and perfection. But no, it's not easy. But it's what Christ calls us to do because we do so out of love. And so Christ is revealed here. Christ is proclaimed both through the teaching and through the warning. And then lastly, I don't think we're going to make it through it, but it looks like we made it through the finish line here. The third observation we see from this text is that Christ is worth the work. Christ is worth the work. I love verse 29. It says, if we're going to proclaim Christ, we're going to warn, we're going to teach with all wisdom that we may present one mature in Christ. This is the goal. And this is Paul's, this is his life. And we see this all through the New Testament. This is, this is his aim. This is what brings him joy. This is what he has committed himself to. We see this in verse 29. For this, for all these things that he just mentioned. And he goes back starting in verse 24. In his sufferings. He's rejoicing in his sufferings for these things. So for his sufferings and for his struggle. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So not only is Christ the revealed mystery. Not only is Christ to be proclaimed, but Christ is worth the work. Christ is worth the work. And no one suffered like Paul. And no one struggled like Paul. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You don't have to turn there, but just I'll read this to you. 1 Corinthians 15, 10 and 11 says this. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they. So we preach and so you believe. So he doesn't say this selfishly. He doesn't say it privately. He says it's because of God who's in him. But he's worked hard. He has worked diligently. He has surrendered all of his previous life, all of his accolades, he says later in his letters, and he has laid it all down. And he counts it as rubbish compared to following after Christ. 
And he has pursued all of these sufferings, and we've seen these. And, and James walked through these last week of his being shipwrecked and beaten and, and all the things that Paul endured. And when sometimes we just kind of brushed over those things, don't we? That he was shipwrecked and beaten. Anybody here, you don't have to raise your hand, please. You've never been beaten, right? I've never been beaten in my life. Hope it doesn't start today. I hope there's no reason I've offended you to get beaten after church, but I'll take it for Christ. And we say that, right? But I, I've hit my hand and it hurts. <laughs> For someone to punch me in the face, we can't just flippantly say, that's just easy to take, right? But Paul has taken that. He's been beaten. He's been shipwrecked. He has, been, he has gone through hunger and thirst. He has gone through everything imaginable for the gospel. And not just for the gospel, but for the church, for Christ's bride. He has endured this. And in this last part of chapter 1, he kind of sums these two things up. And he rejoices in these sufferings, and he rejoices in this, in this struggling. Because Christ is worth the work. 2 Thessalonians, second to last passage. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I just want you to hear from Paul. He can say it so much better than me. I'm going to read this fast. But this, a passage years ago that the Lord just really pressed in me and just, it really speaks to the heart of, of someone who's toiling in ministry, who's toiling for his people, the why, because Christ is worth the work. But just quickly, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and we had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So you see him struggling and suffering. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words or flatteries, you know, nor with any pretext for greed. God is witness. So he's not doing this for money. He's not doing this for, for accolades. Nor do we seek the glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Such a bold statement, right? We could have gotten more stuff from you, but we didn't. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you have become so very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, encouraged you, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom of glory. Different letter, different church, same message. That this is an apostle, this is someone who's leading the church, who is toiling over the church. Because Christ is worth the work. He is pouring himself into the ministry because Christ is worth it. But this was not just the call for the great apostle. This is the call for those who labor in ministry and do so for God's people through God's power. 
As Paul says here, this is not by his own power, it's not by his own strength, it's not by his own ability. This is by the power of God within him that he's able to serve the church like this. The church doesn't need superhero elders and pastors and leaders. The church needs men who recognize that their strength and power come from the Lord, who will toil in the work of the Lord, the work, toil in the work of the Lord. Hebrews 13, 17, that we went through several years ago. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for they would be of no advantage to you. And so Christ is worth the work. We see this toil in Paul. We see this toil in those who surrender to vocational ministry. We also see this toil in personal ministry. This is not just the toil. This is not just the labor of, the, of Paul, the apostle, of the original apostles in the church. This is not just the toil of those who are in vocational ministry, those who are called to, to be elders or deacons in the church. This is the call for all of those who serve one another, who are full of Christ, who Christ dwells inside of them, that we would toil, that we would lay down our lives, that we would lay down our rights and love and serve one another for the sake of the gospel. That like Paul said, that we don't do it for gain, that we don't do it for accolades, we don't do it for people to look at us, that we do it because we love others, because He has loved us. And it's helpful to remember this as we think about Colossians, as we think about Paul's sacrifice, as we think about how he rejoices in his sufferings and how, how he rejoices in his strugglings, because some days it just ain't easy, is it? Some days it's not easy to love the bride of Christ. Some days it's not easy to serve Christ himself. But Paul says it is so worth it because Christ is worth the work because he is the treasure. He is the joy. He is the way. He is the truth. And he is the everlasting life. Christ is worth the work. Christ is to be proclaimed and Christ is the revealed mystery. Let us be reminded of that this morning. Even as we leave this place, let it be something that is so present with us that changes how we live and changes how we walk and go about life. Let's pray. Well, thank you for this day. I thank you for an opportunity to be in your house with your people under your word. Well, thank you for Colossians and for allowing us to walk through it. Thank you for this great mystery that's been revealed, who is Christ. And Lord, I pray that we desire to proclaim him in our life, in our speech, at work, in our home, in every aspect. And Lord, I pray that we recognize and remember this morning that he is so worth the toil he is worth all, any of the pains that may come into this life. Christ is worth it. Lord, as we uh, have a chance to sing, and as we have a chance to come to the communion table, and as a chance to give, Lord, and even uh, as we leave this place, may Christ be ever so mindful. May He be in the front of our mind. May He be, may capture our heart's affection and our mind's attention in every way. I pray these things in His name. Amen.